really, I think of myself as being essentially a reader. But of course, as you are aware, I have ventured into writing, but I think that what I have read is, of course, far more important than what I have written. For one reads what one likes, and, and one writes not what one would like to write, but what, what one is able to write. Hello, I'm Alicia Brogi. And I'm Erica Lombard. We're literary scholars. And this is Literate, the podcast where we go through the New York Public Library's 1995 list of the books of the century. Each episode, we read one of these books, talk about what it means and why it matters, and then try to work out whether it really is one of the books of the century. This time, we read Jorge Luis Borges's Ficciones. We also talk to two experts on Borges, Alberto Manguel and Cristobal Pérez Barra. At the top of the episode, we heard a clip from Jorge Luis Borges himself delivering one of his Norton lectures, A Poet's Creed, at Harvard University on the 10th of April, 1968. So I'm going to start off with a brief introduction to Jorge Luis Borges and the publication of Ficciones. And I'm going to tell you a little about the book, then we'll have a conversation about it. Erica, who was Borges and how did Ficciones come about? Jorge Luis Borges was born in Buenos Aires on the 24th of August, 1899. From the start, his life was all about reading and books. He said that the chief event in his life was his father's library. Fluent in several languages, he was translating Oscar Wilde at the age of nine and reading Shakespeare in English by 12. Hmm. He spent his teen and young adult years in Geneva in Spain. As a writer, he began his career as a poet and essayist. His first book of poems, The Fervor of Buenos Aires, was published in 1923. Elisha, brace yourself. It may shock you to discover that he earned a living as a librarian, <laughs> eventually becoming director of the Argentinian National Library in Buenos Aires. In 1938, he nearly died from blood poisoning, but he recovered. And in the decade that followed, between 1939 and 1949, he wrote all the extraordinary short stories that he's famous for publishing most of them in literary journals, especially the Argentinian magazine Sur. Hmm. All the while, he was losing his eyesight due to a hereditary condition. He was blind by the age of 55. Hmm. Ficciones, which collected 14 of his stories in one book, was published by Editorial Sur in 1944. It is made up of two collections, The Garden of Forking Paths, which had been published in 1941, to which was added a new section called Artifices in 1944. And then in 1956, he added three more stories. Before Ficciones was published in an English translation in 1962, Borges was known only among the literati of Buenos Aires and Paris. This all changed when in 1961, he was awarded the first Fomento Prize, shared with Samuel Beckett, which brought him to the attention of the global north. The following year, Grove Press published the first full English translation of Ficciones. Acclaim, awards, and honorary doctorates followed. <laughs> Borges died in Geneva in June 1986 at the age of 86, with a reputation as the most erudite writer of the 20th century, hmm. and one of the greatest writers not to have won the Nobel Prize for Literature. Hmm. Elisha, I have this idea to create a new mini segment called Cat Corner. I like it. Because it, in reading up about Jorge Luis Borges, I found out that he was a great lover of cats, as you and I are both. Mm -hmm. We each have a cat. My cat is called Hopkins and your cat is called Anatoly. Yes. There are so many photographs of Borges with cats <laughs> and they are all wonderful and delightful. And I think that the best writers must love cats. Absolutely. And Borges apparently had a cat whom he loved called Beppo. 
And he wrote a poem called To a Cat, where he says that cats belong to another time, that they are lords of a place bounded like a dream. And that's all I'm going to say. I just like the fact that, that these authors that we like owned and loved cats. I love it. Alicia, tell us about the stories in Ficciones. The universe, which others call the library, is composed of an indefinite, perhaps an infinite number of hexagonal galleries. So begins the Library of Babel, one of the most famous stories in Jorge Luis Borges's Ficciones. To say that libraries and labyrinths are two of the main themes in this book is absolutely an understatement. <laughs> like a library, the book itself holds together stories that have largely been published elsewhere, as Erica told us, under a title that fits them together into the category of fictions, ficciones. But it's not always clear how fictional these stories are. Some take the guise of prologues, others book reviews, and others essays of memorial. So the book itself offers readers a universe that could be called a library, but is absolutely labyrinthine. Although the book is short, it is constantly pointing beyond its covers. It mm -hmm. is packed with allusions, footnotes, and references to writers, philosophers, and historical events. Some of these references are real, some are imaginary. They range across centuries, subjects, and geographies, and certainly beyond South America, into Europe, India, China, and even North America. I already mentioned that the Library of Babel is one of the most famous stories in Ficciones, but I'll briefly highlight three others. In Tlon Ukbar Orbis Tertius, Borges tells of discovering an imaginary world by tracing mysterious entries in books. In Pierre Menard, <laughs> author of Don Quixote, he writes an obituary for a Frenchman who sets out to write the great Spanish novel Don Quixote from scratch in a very different place and time from its original author and as a non-native speaker. But get this, there was actually a man named Pierre Menard who was not doing this task, but who did live in Nimes. And Borges references him in his essay. So he's playing with fiction and fantasy all along while making a commentary about how texts change mm -hmm. in the reading process. Then, in the third story that I want to highlight, The Garden of Forking Paths, a Chinese teacher of English living in the UK during World War I as a spy for Imperial Germany, finds himself in a world dictated by the rules of a novel that is also a labyrinth. Multiple storylines unfold at once, such that he kills a man who in other lifetimes is his friend. And that, my friends, is a taster to start off our conversation on Ficciones. We're going to open our conversation with an extended reflection from the globally acclaimed Argentinian-Canadian author Alberto Mangel, who knew Borges personally and who generously agreed to tell us what Borges and his writing has meant to him and to literature at large. My name is Alberto Mangel and I had the privilege of meeting Borges a long time ago in my adolescence, so more than half a century ago. I came across Borges first in school, we studied him, and then meeting him personally in a bookstore where I worked and he came to buy books. And because he was blind at that point, this was in the mid-60s, he would ask me to come and read to him in the evenings texts that he could no longer see. Borges was at that point trying to write stories again. When he became blind, he stopped writing prose and he only wrote poetry because he said poetry came to him like music to which he would add words. I did not know at the time with the arrogance of adolescence that I was in the presence of one of the great masters of the literature of all time. I say this advisedly. His book, Ficciones, which is perhaps the best known of his book, is in fact two books. One book that he put together with six stories in 1941, The, the Garden of Forking Path, 
And then uh, a second part um, that he called Artifices, and together they constitute this extraordinary book called Ficciones. If I were to choose one of the stories of Ficciones to try to explain to a reader who has not read Borges why he is so important, this text, and I hesitate to call it a fiction, is Pierre Menard, author of The Quixote. Why do I say that? Because I believe that literature is before Pierre Menard and after Pierre Menard. With Pierre Menard, Borges created a watershed for literature that gives the reader the power to determine what a book is. In the interpretation of a reader, a book can change its nature. And this is what Borges does, describing the character of Pierre Menard, a, a fictitious French writer of the 20th century, whose ambition is to write Don Quixote, not to copy it, not to modernize it, but to write it word by word again. And Borges does this extraordinary thing. He takes a paragraph from Quixote, a description of history, truth, whose mother is history, etc., 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 and compares it as if written by Cervantes, which it was, of course, and in that case, it's merely a rhetorical praise of history. And the other, to say in the 20th century that truth, uh, whose mother is history, that what we know is history, is what we define as truth. In, in this time of, of fake news, the idea that what we say happened is what really happened is scandalous, outrageous, revolutionary, while in Cervantes' time it was a more or less meaningless uh, concatenation in praise of, of history. So with Pierminar, Borges puts the power of the text in the hands of the reader. And so he concludes the text by saying that, for instance, uh, this exercise of attributing a text to someone else renews the text. So he gives an, as an example that if we were to say that the imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis, which is a, a series of pseudo-religious precepts, quite dry and boring. But if we said that this was written by James Joyce, what renewal for these tenuous exercises. Borges had the mind of a reader. He defined himself above all as a reader, not a writer. And as a reader, he knew that the labels we apply to literature are not valid, that they are contracts between the reader and the writer. If I say this is a book of short stories, a poem, an essay, nonfiction, etc., I'm preparing the reader uh, to uh, enter the text uh, through a certain door. And so he played with this. He published Pierre Menard as an essay. So people who uh, read the, this text for the first time they would say, why haven't I heard of this uh, minor French writer, or I don't agree with Borges because he is this and he is that. And this is a way of introducing artifice into art. It's a way of enfeebling the conventions that we establish since the beginning of literature between the writer and the reader. Borges was extraordinary in gathering in his imagination the literature of the world. And it is not a surprise that one of his most famous stories, The Library of Babel, begins by saying, the library whose other name is the universe. Library, universe, were for Borges the same. 
So, Erica, did you emerge from the labyrinth unscathed? How did you find Borges? <laughs> what a difference, right? If last episode, if Song of Solomon was a, a certain kind of journey, that was a maybe a, a straight line. This book was not that. A different kind of journey into the labyrinth. It is its own best metaphor. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I emerged unscathed. This wasn't my first experience of reading Borges. But I think that maybe the thing that I experienced the most this time was it was just fun. I had such fun reading these stories. They're short. They're easy to read. They're quick to read. They are like fun little puzzles, you know? Mm. They're quick and digestible, but they leave you with a mysteriousness in the air. Yes, and they're funny. Yeah, it's a particular kind of humor, though. It's like it's a, mm. there's a kind of a wit, a cerebral wit. It's irony. It's juxtaposition. That's the kind of funny it is. Yes, I saw an interview where... Someone proposed to him, actually it was Seamus Haney and I believe it was Richard Kearney who was asking it, but the two of them were interviewing Jorge Luis Borges for a joycean event, but one of them asked him, said, there are similarities between your work and Beckett's. What do you think about that? And I thought that was a fairly apt question. And he <laughs> says, Beckett is such a bore. I started reading Waiting for Godot. Godot never comes. Like, why would you read this? I never read a word, you know, after that. <laughs> Which is interesting that. with your teleological comment about, you know, things do happen in his books, but at the same time, they kind of also lead to nowhere. And, yeah, yeah. and it, it was just that humor and the philosophical engagement of his work that left me really surprised that he would distance himself from Beckett. I think that, that maybe it suggests something about like how he plays with genre. He's got this incredible kind of intellect and erudition, like he's read everything. Mm. There's just reference after reference that you picked up on. But at the same time, you can tell that he really liked a good pulp novel or like a good yeah. rollicking kind of adventure or a detective, detective novel. Story. Right? How many of these books uh, or these stories are detective novel type things? He likes a little mystery. He likes to give you the answer, but then also hint at the possibility of a different answer. Mm. Was it Herbert Quain, that short story where he, he's going through the books that Herbert Quain has written and then how he wrote a detective story that has a solution, but then if you read carefully, if you as the reader slash detective read carefully, mm. you get the other solution. <laughs> but the best, the best part about this, for me at least, is that he managed to write these stories that create the idea of other stories in your mind mm -hmm. without having to go through all of the motions of writing those other stories. He's gesturing towards these other stories that maybe are more interesting in a way than the story he's writing, or certainly he leads you to believe that. But that exists because he's created it in this story. Yes, it's that anti- novel sentiment that seems to be implicated in a feeling about language, a skepticism toward realism, toward mm. creating worlds that are comprehensively represented in language, but instead gesturing toward more that may be and may not be and is unsettled and ambiguous and mysterious mm. and mm. philosophically fraught. It was also your, your contrast with Morrison, that was in the back of my mind frequently while reading yeah. how different his work is, not being chronological, not being teleological, but also it doesn't feel as material to me. Or, mm, exactly. But they both share a love of language, and yet that love seems to be, maybe his love is more skeptical, but it's also a love of language, it seems like. Mm. And it's more of an erudite language that's less... Like, you don't get the taste and the feel of his world as much. It's not embodied in the same way. Totally. Yes. I, I mean, I use the word cerebral, and I think that, I mean, th there are hardly any women. I mean, there are, th there are bodies, but they're <laughs> bodies that are getting stabbed or, or mm. getting sick or mm. infirm in some way. I don't think the physical was all that important to him. And I think that's really interesting to think of in, in relation to his blindness, hmm. which was coming from his like early 30s, I think. He started losing his eyesight. It became progressively worse. And he was hmm. something like the sixth generation in his family oh, wow. for this to happen. He'd seen his father going blind. The fallibility of the body was probably something that was really clear to him. And 
I read somewhere, I think it was something that Alberto Mangel, whom we've heard from, said something like Borges would want people to read to him. Mm. And when that happened, he didn't want to eat anything that was interesting. He only wanted like white, bland food. Like he wanted plain noodles. (laughs) So clearly food didn't interest him all that much. For, For me, this is sacrilegious or as Homer Simpson would say sacrilegious but (laughs) like that makes sense to me right because these Hmm. are all these kind of labyrinths of the mind these books although on the other hand maybe food has a power over it maybe he's very aesthetically sensitive and it would have been too distracting I I mean I don't know how to give him the benefit of the doubt in one respect but it's it's not just that that's in my mind no fair enough It's also that his earlier writings from the 20s on writing, he does this confession of faith in literature. And he speaks about writing and literature in really romantic terms Mm. and being autobiographical and the expression of the emotion and of a soul. And and that seems to change so much by the time we get ficciones. If that is also at play, it's at play in a very layered way. So it's not the first thing you, you feel when you're reading that work. Yeah. It's not an illumination of pathos in the way that the younger Borges seemed to speak about more directly. And so I wonder, you know, what are those layers? And how is it that when he's in other contexts and formats, he comes across a little more embodied and a little warmer, maybe? So you think that it's a matter of the form? I'm not sure what it is. I think it's a bit of a mystery. As I was reading around about him, I kept seeing evidence of his surprise and shock when when people would pose to him that he comes across as distant or impersonal in his writings. And not to say that that's connected with food, (laughs) per se, being personal or something, but the sense of being an embodied person with desire. And he just seems so shocked and affronted when people would pose this in interviews that, (laughs) that I just wonder what kind of complex layers actually are going into something like ficciones and how is it being distilled or abstracted possibly? Yeah. I've listened to some of his notes and lectures that he gave in like 1968. And he comes across there as really warm and really kind of, he's not like disembodied in the way that he is as a person. And yet I, I sort of get that. I mean, I remember coming back to Borges when I was doing my master's, I did a course on deconstruction ethics and literature. Hmm. And I remember being disappointed by it because I think I was looking for something more kind of like ethically sound. I, you know, I was coming out of like Kutsia and I was looking for something about like what it is to be a good person. And I felt like these were all kind of a bit frivolous, actually. These like fun little puzzles that I'm like, so what? So what is what I thought. My experience reading the book this time was really different. I was just like, huh. I like the puzzle. Mm. I like that. That's great. This is not his, his entire oeuvre. This is not his entire life. These are these fun ideas that have sparked off so many other ideas. The way that these stories and these ideas create other ones in your mind, I think, is really just so rich. I didn't do the work to track down the illusions carefully, but what I read about them, apparently, if you do, or if you're if you're aware of the conversations that he's alluding to, he's or at times he's talking about really politicized moments in Irish history, in Argentinian history. He apparently mm. was willing to align himself with Joyce in a way that he wasn't with Beckett. And there's this like recurring Irish theme in his writing. So yeah, I'm not sure how. Because one of the questions in my mind when I was reading it is, is this a labyrinth that kind of leads to nowhere? Is it a cul-de-sac? Are these nice intellectual games yeah, yeah, yeah. that make you more erudite, but are also a little arid and I don't know. And- erudite and <laughs> arid. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That's the question, right? Like, is this going nowhere? I also saw in his biography that he was incredibly politically active. He quit his position as the head of the Argentinian National Library when Juan Perón got back in. He was vehemently anti-communist, but also vehemently anti-fascist and vehemently anti-anti-Semitism. So he himself is not, he's not uncommitted. Yeah. From what I read, his politics are attributed with being what kept him from winning the Nobel Prize because his record wasn't only positive necessarily. Oh uh, yeah. Cause he accepted a prize from Pinochet. And his convictions changed. Like, And by the end of his life, he called himself an anarchist. So he wasn't willing to be committed in I mean, he was willing to be committed in a very individualist way or in a way that that weighed up ideas and later was willing to say, ah, this was incorrect and to go back, but to to hold positions that were considered sort of contradictory. 
What is your favorite story? If you have one, <sighs> which did you find the most like rich or interesting to think about? My favorite story is Pierre Menard, author of Don Quixote. Oh, like Alberto Mangel. I think that part of that is because I'm more familiar with the intertext there. And so mm. I can appreciate the play more robustly. And it's hilarious to me. Also, it's sort of tongue in cheek about literary criticism. I mean, <laughs> yeah. well, partly because it's displacing the authority of the author and putting it, you know, into the reader's hands, but also because that's what we literary critics do. Like we can read the exact same thing and say, ah, oh, because it's written from this position, you know, it therefore means, and then make <laughs> these like fabulous proclamations, which I think it's kind of important to be a little cheeky about. Yeah, um, I think so too. Yeah. And, and Borges does that while still making valid points. And so it's that capacity to be serious. And, and I think that's the Joycean, like Jocko serious capacity of these. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jocko serious, which is what? Kind of like serious, but using humor? Yeah, I think that applies here because it's raising serious points, but with an element of irony and you know, there's some bathos to it. So it's not only serious. He talks about this directly. He says, yes, this is what I meant by comic truth. The truth of fiction, which is able to tolerate cyclical and contradictory representations of reality. This is why I say that every word that Wilde wrote is true. I too believe in comic truth. That's just before he tells us that Beckett is a bore. <laughs> <laughs> I think it, for me, that really encapsulates how his fiction ends up potentially being a cul-de-sac and a labyrinth that leads nowhere, but also having these mystical valences and being erudite and possibly incredibly rich. And both possibilities are held together. Okay, so do you want to know what my favorite story is? Absolutely. I don't know if I have a favorite. I have a few that I really like. I think that I don't know if I'm going to become like the voice of the mainstream here, but I really like the Library of Babel. I loved it. It was great. It was basically like the ultimate Borges story. We've got books, we've got libraries, we've got labyrinths, we got like <laughs> weird sects and like, you know, conspiracies of a sort. We've got some kind of cool intellectual mind game where all the books, no matter how diverse they may be, are made up of the same elements. This is a quotation. The space, the period, the comma, the 22 letters of the alphabet. <laughs> so they're just infinite books with infinite variations of all of these things so that everything that has ever been and that will ever be could be found in a book. It's Borges in a nutshell, hmm. in an infinite library of hexagonal galleries. It was fun. It kind of sparks off ideas in your mind. And I enjoyed that because it also, I think that it's, it's enough removed away from real life that you aren't making mm. that demand of it, mm. that it, it becomes a fun trip to go on for a little while. Can you say more about that? I think that's really interesting. I, you know, he's always playing with myth, right? Mm. He's playing mm. with mythicness. So this is interesting in relation to Toni Morrison as well, because she's, playing with myth in a very different kind of a way, in a very like embodied way. The things that are at stake for Toni Morrison yeah. don't seem to be at stake for Borges. Yes. Another story that I kept coming back to was The Circular Ruins, where this guy dreams a man into being. Yes. Apparently this influenced Christopher Nolan in Inception, hmm. where people dream things into being. It was that and the one where the guy is about to be executed by the firing squad, The Secret Miracle. That I like because it's got this feeling of a, of a myth. It's sort of a bit Indiana Jonesy. these ruins and these temples and this guy's mm. dreaming a person into being. And that's what Borges is doing in his fiction too. He's saying like dreams matter. Yes. And then by the end of the story, the wizard who dreams up the man, he ends up dying and in the process finds out that he too was only a dream in someone else's imagination. Yeah. So it returns to the beginning, the circle again, another trip around the labyrinth. There's something that he tapped into, just how stories work on us and how like narratives work on us, I think. And I think it comes from him spending early formative years with books. Mm -hmm. Because I remember that feeling, that magic feeling of reading books as a small child and being sucked into them and being hit in my gut by the pathos of certain stories. And I think that's what he gets at. And the play between fact and fiction in the book also, it sort of points toward the way in which that's true of reading and how is that also true of life? Or mm. is there a way in which, not in a didactic connection, mm -mm. but 
Um, yeah, I mean, he's always playing between fiction and reality. Okay, so this theme about being a dream and being an imaginary creature, it kind of starts in the beginning of the book because he's referencing Barclay, who's a philosopher, Bishop George Barclay. And Borges ends up talking about this specifically in this interview. And I think there's a connection with myth here for reasons that will become apparent. He says, my father introduced me to Barclay's philosophy at the age of 10. Before I was even able to read or write properly, he taught me to think. He was a professor of psychology, and every day after dinner, he would give me a philosophy lesson. I remember very well how he first introduced me to Barclay's idealist metaphysics, and particularly his doctrine that the material or empirical world is an invention of the creative mind. To be is to be perceived. Esse est percipi. And he uses an orange illustration. Does it really taste this way? Does it really look orange? Or is that our perception of it? Um, So then Borges goes on. This was a revelation to me, that the outside world is as we perceive or imagine it to be. It does not exist independently of our minds. From that day forth, I realized that reality and fiction were betrothed to each other, that even our ideas are creative fictions. I have always believed that metaphysics, religion, and literature all have a common source. And as the interview goes on, this gets connected directly to the circular ruins that you were just discussing. Mm. And I think the connection with myth is interesting in the back of my mind because he says, though I discovered this metaphysical doctrine in Barclay and Schopenhauer, I later learned on reading, and I don't know how to pronounce his name, Copias de Lera des Buddha, that it was a central teaching of Eastern philosophy. This Buddhist teaching that reality is the recurring dream of the Godhead or of a Godhead prompted me to write Circular Ruins. So... That whole global pointing toward different philosophical and religious traditions, yeah, totally. you know, that's informing and it's kind of complex mythological background, yeah, maybe. Or- that's it. I mean, he's drawing from all of these different sources. Like his sources are so vast. He's read everything. Yeah, yes. So he's going between East and West. He's going between North and South. Like he covers the globe and... And he brings it all together or he distills something down and he distills it in a particular kind of feeling and, mm. and with an, an economy. So in a few pages, he manages to do this, which I think is quite incredible. Yes, you need a library to understand a single book of Borges. <laughs> That's it, right? What you were saying about us all being the dream of some godhead and the idea of, of fiction being prime and like he... he he was anticipating what was going to happen in the second half of the 20th century, right? This thing of like, well, we are stories. Hmm. Memory is a story we tell about what has happened to us and who we were. And identity is a narrative that we tell about ourselves. Like I am a story and Hmm. stories work their way through us and they have very real consequences. Even if we can think of them as fictions, that doesn't mean that they aren't real. We don't just tell stories. We are stories. And he, he gets that and he anticipates that. Yeah. Kearney picks up on the thread by asking, but do we invent God or does God invent us? Is the primary creative imagination divine or human? To which Borges responds, ah, that is the question. It might be both. And that sort of pantheistic, mystical, we are stories. It's all the story and we are the storytellers. I'm now doing him down, I think, by being sort of basic. But, but there's something of that. At play in him, mm. I think, in his writings. Yeah, and I, I think that points towards something that is quite profound and that isn't just frivolous. Mm. There is meaning beneath all of this. It, it's not necessarily the meaning I was looking for when I was doing my master's. One of the words that's used to describe these stories or these pieces, since I'm not even sure that stories is an accurate <laughs> term, is fable. And Yes. And that gets at some of their qualities, but it also... I mean, if you think of Aesop's fables, these are not Aesop's fables. I mean, these are not... No, they're not didactic in that way. They're not didactic. They're not character-driven. One of the questions they lead me to ask is about my own desire to find a meaning in the text and a lesson in the text. Or, you know, Morrison gives you a... I mean, her stories are so socially and politically implicated. And there Mm. are those aspects to these stories, but... There's not a center in a way. There's no center to the labyrinth, you mean? Yeah. So what would you say to your former self as a reader of Borges? Would you give yourself instruction on how to approach Borges? Or do you think it's just worth coming back to at different times in your life? Why do you read him differently now? I think that I'm talking about when I was 23. 
in reading this. And I was in a different life stage. I think it's about what you're looking for in the reading experience and what you're asking of a book and of a story. Are you asking it to tell you something that you wanted to tell you? Are you looking for it to tell you something in a way that would be convenient for your essay that you have to write for class? (laughs) Because I came to this now a little older, hopefully a little wiser, but also with different expectations. I came to to this book just kind of open to, to what happened. And yes, there are things to be said about his position as a cosmopolitan man who wasn't always on the the side of political power, certainly, but there are things to be said about his position of power in society. The same things that are at stake for Toni Morrison in writing her novels are not at stake for him. He doesn't have this, this weight on him. He is certainly, he's writing from the global south. I think he probably felt the weight of his not being a European, potentially, which made him do that thing that second language speakers do, which is they become incredibly eloquent, way more so than first language speakers. You know, you learn all the vocabulary. He did that. He did all the research. That also reminds me of something I heard in an interview. It was a discussion for In Our Time. They were speaking about his translational habits and how he would intentionally change the gender of characters or just make corrections. And it would be the first time that these great English works were being introduced into the Spanish world. And he was like, and he seemed to sort of enjoy some of the freedoms that came with being... He's just a radical translator. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, he was authorial in his own translations and the sense of not needing to be original, but being able Mm. to work with the tradition that's handed to him. And people didn't know any better. And so I think it's... Yeah, it's interesting that being in the Global South also afforded him certain freedoms. And yeah. so that's hilarious. Somehow, yeah, I think it's interesting too that he was, he was lauded first as a translator. He wasn't valorized as an author for so much of his life. So, yeah, I mean, it's only when he's in his early 60s that he gets discovered in the Western world and beyond the local, he becomes a global sensation. So, there's the question of what's at stake and how that might shape the way that you write about things. You know, maybe it's the way he went about it as well, that he doesn't have the weight of being at the disempowered Hmm. ends of so many axes of power from an intersectional point of view. You don't have that feeling of proximate political pressures in the same way as with Morrison, but that distancing Hmm. allows a certain playfulness, which has its own value. Yeah. I also think that he and Morrison share something, which is this idea of like, it's in your hands the power of the reader to make meaning. They both trust their readers a great deal and demand a lot of their readers. Borges identified himself above all as a reader. Like first and foremost, that's what he was. He was a reader before Mm. he was a poet, before he was a writer of prose. And that was the order he did it in. The Mm. reader is so important to him. So there is a connection there in like what they ask of the reader to do. The reader is the perceiver who makes the world. hear from another reader. We interviewed Cristobal Perez Barra, who is a writer, translator, and literary critic. He is earning a doctorate from the University of Oxford on J.M. Quetzia's Hispanic Worlds, including his relationship with the work of Borges. Cristobal, when did you first read Borges, might I ask? Yes, I first read Jorge Luis Borges when I was 17 years old um, at school. It was uh, chosen by my Spanish teacher as um, something relatively new. It wasn't on the syllabus at the time. So that was my first approach to his literature. And when I was 22, I began reading him in earnest uh, when I was starting law, provided me with uh, great solace and I have been reading and rereading him uh, ever since. And does he feature in your research somewhat? Yes. I I think my interest in his work is threefold. First and foremost, 
as a reader, it does give you so many clues and other authors to read. He's the great librarian of the West. So even if you've read very little before, you'll be coming across the names of Stevenson, Kipling, and some more obscure writings as Icelandic sagas. So it's a great guide for you to begin with in literature as a reader. Um, secondly, I think as a writer, it teaches you something you don't really find that much within the Spanish world, or Spanish speaking to be more precise, which is precision, concession, economy, that you find very seldom in writers like Valle Inclán or even Marquez. But he really is very, very economical. Every single word counts and there's no burden of words that could be excluded at all, I feel. And um, I think that the third way in which uh, he's been important to me is as a first example of a writer from the South, which has a vision of the West, which on the one hand, he's mentally in the West, in a very central position, but then geographically, he's in the periphery. So he's at the very margins, as uh, Beatriz Sarlo once wrote. So I think in those three ways, he's um, always been there somehow. That's fascinating. Thank you. You've already touched a little bit about on his, his relationship to Spanish-speaking literature. Would you mind speaking at all to the place of ficciones in Latin American literature? Yes, I think it's a book of the utmost importance. Um, and I would expand that not only to ficciones, but to all these stories he wrote between 1939 and 1949, which we could easily deem a prodigious decade. These stories originally appeared in magazines and newspapers and then were collected in three books and two volumes. So um, The Garden of Forking Paths, Ficciones and The Aleph. So those three. And they made all the writing, the novel writing of the boom possible. So José Donoso, Vargas Llosa, García Márquez and Carlos Fuentes. Cortázar um, would not have written the way they wrote, and specifically because of a very important factor, which was that Borges enabled them to remove this inferiority complex which Latin Americans had until that point. So I think it was crucial in that respect. And I remember very vividly um, of all those writers, the one that is still alive and writing and publishing is Mario Vargas Llosa. And he was recently asked about the book on his library that meant the most to him. And he picked uh, Ficciones. Wow. And he deemed it an almost perfect piece of work. Hmm. Wow. That's amazing. Yes. You're a literary translator yourself. How do you think Borges' stories read in their English translation? I, I think they read extraordinarily well for three reasons. When you read the first story of uh, Ficciones, Plön, Ogbar, or Mistercius, in several pages you get the impression they were written in English. So mm. they quote Kipling and Thomas mm. Brown, and they mention uh, Bernard Quaritch's bookshop in London, which still exists. So you do get that impression for a while. And secondly, um, he did collaborate with one of his foremost translators, uh, an American, Norman Thomas Di Giovanni. Not on Ficciones, though. He did collaborate on Brody's report and um, the Aleph. And he felt uncomfortable with some aspects uh, of his writing in his 30s and 40s um, at later age. So he chose to revisit and he even did some rewriting of uh, those stories so they could qualify as an authorial revision. And wow. thirdly, I would say um, he's such an important seminal writer that uh, there is a whole gamut of translations that people written in English can now choose from. James Irby and um, Anthony Kerrigan, Norman Thomas Di Giovanni, and Donald Yates uh, as well. So at least those four are very good. And I see no reason why 
good English translations should not be coming in the near future. So uh, a little lighter, what's your favorite story <laughs> in this collection? I, I seem to have two for different reasons. I think for technical reasons, I find Plön Ukbar or Mistertius um, insuperable. Um, it's just a wonderful um, tour de force. And pretty much all the Borgesian themes are contained in it. The idea of the labyrinth, passionate friendship, intellectual friendship, because let's not forget, it starts with a conversation, recalling a conversation between his friend and fellow writer Adolfo Bioy Casares and himself, the idea of the double. And it's just a fantastic piece of work because at the very beginning, once he moves from his realist introduction, you're introduced to the idea of Plön as a very strange, uh, bizarre idea, but because of his sheer mastery, the reader is drawn into the story and by the end you believe in it. So I find it extraordinary and especially it provides you with the idea that there is solace in literature. It was written in 1940 when um, the world was falling apart. So um, I think in the last paragraph, he says something like English and French and maybe even Spanish may altogether disappear. But um, I try not to worry too much about it and uh, keep on translating Thomas Brown in my small room. And for more personal reasons, I'm very fond of the Library of Babel as well, which is shorter, possibly less complex, but it's a testament of his love for literature. And I'm very, very fond of that uh, short story. I love that one too. So Cristobal, is this one of the books of the century in your estimation? Would you pick it out of Borges's body of work? I think it most certainly is. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, I would expand that to the stories also collected in the Aleph. Everything he wrote in the late 30s and all along the 40s is just um, extraordinary writing. And they were, you know, published in magazines and newspapers. So I don't really think the order of publication, in fact, in English, they were published in very dissimilar ways in the States and in England. So they, I don't really see ficciones as a literary artifact the way you would see, say, 100 Years of Solitude, but rather as a great distillation of his craft during that period. And it's just an extraordinary book. And I also find it fascinating that he acquired such a reputation without ever writing a novel. I don't think he even attempted. And so I'll keep that and also his very early poetry and some of his interviews, which never failed to reveal a most intelligent man. And he had this prodigious memory as well. There were several interviews um, in Spanish television and elsewhere, and he keeps on talking and reciting without a single sheet of paper. I'm not surprised. <laughs> I mean, as a reader, he, he can be so intelligent, it becomes annoying. Uh, but it's in the end always a joy to go back to him, and it never fails to provide you with great solace, especially in times like this. Well, that was wonderful. Thank you very much. No, thank you. Erica, what do you think? Is Borges's Ficciones one of the books of the century? Yes, I think it is. I think that just from the point of view of influence, we can't deny just how productive these stories have been. I spoke about them sparking off ideas in my mind, but they've inspired so many other writers. I can't imagine like Umberto Eco without Borges. Hmm. Can you imagine Katia without Borges? My understanding of Katia is much richer having read Borges. Ah, okay. That's a, a sidestep. Fair enough. But there are so many, it's almost like he's invented hypertext in, in the Garden of Forking Paths, all of the different possibilities coming from these different moments. 
his ideas were incredibly influential. The ideas about what a reader is and what a writer is and what a work of fiction is were also incredibly influential. He's writing these stories in like the late 1930s and the, and the early 1940s. And he anticipated a whole lot of movements that were going to happen. Hmm. Do you think you can have Jacques Derrida without hmm. Borges? Hmm. I don't know. Hmm. So from the point of view of influence, I think very clear to me that this is one of the books that shapes what literature is in the late 20th century. Hmm. What about you? What do you think? I agree. And I find it so fascinating that he was never awarded the Nobel Prize. Yeah. I think your emphasis on influence is crucial. And at the heart of that is this aesthetic where the themes that he addresses, he doesn't just do directly. He does that formally. He takes philosophical ideas and plays with them in the very structures of his work. Mm -hmm. And... And because of that, when you read alongside of him, you're able to think in, or I, when I read alongside him, I'm able to think in different ways and test ideas in different ways. So when I think about the influence he had on successive writing in Spanish, but also beyond that, that influence isn't peripheral or a garnish. It's at that heart of where aesthetics meets what can be thought, what can be said. Hmm. And he really taps into a historical moment where questions about the way that reality is philosophically or theologically mm. turn into mm. questions about, you know, how we shape reality in a self-conscious way, self-conscious questions about how we shape reality in literature and then how that cycles back to thinking in the world. And he offers tools of the craft to be very crass that others take up that are also really a pleasure to take up. Yeah, yeah. I like that. One of the qualities that I especially love is the rich intertextual illusion mm. and reference and resonance. Yeah. I love tracing those things down and then seeing what's at stake and what's at play. Yeah. In them. So just in terms of personal pleasure, that's one of my favorite aspects of reading Borges. So that's our episode on Ficciones. We'd like to thank Alberto Mangel and Cristobal Perez Barra for talking to us for this episode. Our music on this episode was specially created for it by Erica. It was fun. I love doing it. Woohoo! <laughs> on the next episode in two weeks' time, we'll be reading Jack Kerouac's On the Road. Want to read along? Please do. We'd also love to hear from you. Please get in touch with your thoughts on the book or this episode. You can read more about the podcast on literatepodcast.com or find us on Twitter at literatepodcast. Or you can email us at literatepodcast at gmail.com. If you like this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe. Tell your friends. And please support your local library and independent bookshop. <laughs> <laughs>